Jeremiah chapter 23, beginning with verse 1, it says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people, you have scattered my flock, driven them away and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doing, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries which I have driven them and bring them back to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them and they shall dwell in their own land. And in verse nine, it says, my heart within me is broken Because of the prophets, all my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. For because of a curse, the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their course of life is evil and their might is not right. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house, I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. I'm going to pause there. Like I said, Jeremiah begins his 10th sermon. The chapter will address Judah's politicians, priests and prophets. The leaders have failed miserably to live up to God's divine standards. Deliverance and restoration would come only by a supernatural act, by divine intervention. If there was going to be any hope for the people of Judah, if there's going to be any hope for Jerusalem whatsoever, God would have to step in. God would have to intervene. If there was any hope, any way out, God was going to have to help them. Sound familiar? The ruthless leaders would still be responsible before God for the stewardship that was entrusted to them. Just like your Responsible for the stewardship that's been entrusted to you, whether you're a husband or a wife, a father, a mother, a brother, a sister. What is the task of leaders? 
whether it's in the home or in the church or in the nation, the task of the leader is to build people up, to encourage them using their authority and their leadership to point people away from sin and to point them to God, to point them to to Christ. So that they'll embrace godly living and do what's right. Remember what was said so long ago. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk in humility with your God. General Charles Gordon once asked Lee Hong Chang about the nature of leadership. And he said, there are only three kinds of people in the world. Those that are movable, those that are immovable, and those that move them. No wonder Robert E. Lee warned his generals, you must be careful how you walk. You must be careful where you go. For there are those who are following you who will set their feet where yours are set. And so this chapter is a complex set of warnings and promises. It begins in verse one. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. You're probably familiar with that word. You and I typically would use it. I first used it when I was on top of a horse in in the fifth grade and the horse just all of a sudden took off and I went, whoa, but that's not what the meaning is here. It is a statement of warning, a strong warning. Once again, the Lord's delivering a warning to those who would scatter and destroy the sheep. And so he uses the language, the imagery of a shepherd. And remember, the imagery of a shepherd was hearkening back to the time when David was the king. And remember, David was first a shepherd in the fields watching his father's flocks. And part of the job of a shepherd is to lead And to feed and to guide and to guard. And so the ideal shepherd has those. That picture, someone who leads and someone who feeds and someone who guides and someone who guards. But the shepherds of Judah and of Israel fleeced the flock. They looked at the sheep as a source of sustenance. We know that leaders influence. And because the job of the leader is to influence, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem used their influence for wickedness. They failed in their duties. They failed to execute righteousness. They failed to promote justice. Instead of driving people towards God, they were driving people away from God. And so in verse 2, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock. You have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doing, says the Lord. Part of the point of the passage is that spiritual leaders, as well as physical leaders, who abuse the people will not go 
unpunished. And he uses the word attended and attend in the verse. You can see in the in the middle of the verse in verse two, you've driven them away and not attended to them. But you'll notice that the end, he says, I will attend to you. It's the same Hebrew word. It comes from the same Hebrew word meaning pakad. The first has the suggestion look after and the second suggests punishment. The word has sort of escaped our language and our vocabulary. But some of you are old enough to remember when you were disobedient and your mom would say, I'm going to tell your father when he gets home and he's going to attend to you. And you know exactly what attend means. It means he's going to do what is necessary in order to execute discipline. This morning I was with some law enforcement people and they were running some simulations. And during one of the protocols, one person felt this need to get into an extended argument. And the argument began one minute, two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes. Finally, the instructor said, stop. He said, this is what we do. We ask them, then we tell them, and then we make them. This isn't a debate. When people's lives are on the line, you're not supposed to argue with them. And you'll notice, even in this text, the Lord asks them, won't you stop? Won't you turn from your sin? And then he tells them, stop and turn from your sin. And now he's going to make them. He's going to make them comply. The leaders were oppressing the people. The Lord will place the captivity squarely on the shoulders of Israel and Judah's leadership. He says, you scattered my flock. You drove them away. You didn't attend to them. And so the Lord's making it very clear that leaders have an awesome responsibility The leaders oppressed the poor. The leaders were lying and cheating and stealing in order to increase their wealth and their power. They weren't attending to the needy. Some of them had imprisoned the innocent. Some of them had executed the righteous. And in the New Testament, Peter describes the false teachers this way. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, he says, With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in in greed they are an accursed brood and so the lord switches gears and even in the midst of that terrible terrible warning it says in verse 3 but i will gather the remnant of my flock Out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. Now, I've repeated this throughout our study in the book of Jeremiah, but I need to remind you once again. Remember when Daniel, the prophet, was taken away and placed in captivity in Babylon, he had with him the scroll of Jeremiah. And I'm going to suggest to you that as he unrolled this scroll and he came to chapter 23 and he read verse 3 again, that his heart 
was stirred and his hands would begin to sweat and his knees would tremble as he began to understand something that God had made a promise. That even in the midst of that displacement, even in the midst of that captivity, there's this promise that shines, this bright light that comes on and Jeremiah is going to give Daniel hope and the reality that God is going to restore the people. And over and over again, both in the book of Isaiah and the book of Jeremiah, there is this constant reference to the remnant. It's talked about in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 16, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 3. Remember, the remnant are the survivors who pass through the judgment. The remnant are those people who pass through the sword, the plague, the captivity. The imprisonment. These are the people who will survive. And God will bring them back. Because God has a plan and a purpose. The purpose isn't simply discipline. The purpose is to fulfill the promise that he gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David. You guys are in trouble. Your sin is overwhelming. If you're going to have any chance whatsoever to experience forgiveness and hope, there's going to need to be a savior. 150 years earlier in the northern kingdom of Samaria, the Assyrians had come down and captured the city and displaced the people. And so if you think about Greece and you think about the Baltic Sea and you think about what's now called Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, and and you think of all of the areas of Syria and you think of Iran and Iraq and Babylon and you go around the Mediterranean Rim and you go into what's now the Jordan and you go into what's now Egypt and you go into what's now Tunisia, the Jews had been scattered throughout that Mediterranean rim. And God said, I'm going to bring you back out of all of the countries. In spite of the judgment, God gives a picture of restoration and the blessings of repentance and restoration include prosperity. And it's talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. And we've sort of touched on that before, but I just want to bring it to your attention real quick. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, you'll remember there's a series of promises that are given. And it says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and all your children with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord... Your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven from there, the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord. And do all of his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God. To keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the this book of the law. And if you turn to the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, can you imagine? Can you imagine the oppression and can you imagine the discipline and can you imagine the punishment? But over and over and over again, the Lord is extending the invitation not to give up. And I need you to understand the context of that passage. After Moses broke the first set of tablets, God allowed a second set to be given to the people. The priests were required to care for the ark. They were in Numbers chapter 3. They were to serve in the morning offering, in in offering worship. The priests were to offer worship. They were to teach. They were to conduct the legal matters. They were to conduct themselves in the blessing of Israel. That was their job. Their job was to... Teach the law, care for the ark, serve in worship, provide teaching and blessing. That was their job. And so in verse four, he says, I'll set up shepherds over them who will feed them and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. You know, on my ordination certificate. That's this verse. This verse. I will set up shepherds over them. Who will feed them. And they shall fear no more. Nor be dismayed. Nor shall they be lacking. The Lord promised a time when God would raise up leaders. And the priority of the leader was to be the welfare of the people. And the emphasis would be on those who are served. And to understand the will of God. And to be willing to do the will of God. Under the new administration, the people would no longer be terrified by the threats of the leaders. They would no longer be terrified by kings and priests who saw the people as an opportunity to expand themselves personally, professionally. The Lord would appoint faithful leaders. And so in order, by the way, to safeguard leadership in the church, Paul would provide a list of characteristics that would be necessary for leadership. And as a matter of fact, if you read in the New Testament, Paul gives instructions to Timothy Concerning the qualifications of leaders in chapter three, verses one through seven. In the early church, unqualified and spiritually immature people would sometimes be raised to a position that they had no business occupying. And sometimes they would lead people astray. And sometimes they would teach false doctrine. And so Paul made a list. 
that leaders should, number one, be above reproach, a man with a good reputation. Number two, the husband of one wife, morally pure. Number three, self-control. That means balanced in words and actions. Number four, be sensible. That means be wise and humble. Be respectable. That means be a good role model. And number six, be hospitable. That means unselfish and generous. Number seven, be an apt teacher or an able teacher. The idea being the capacity to communicate with sensitivity the truth. A leader is one who encourages people to care about each other, but also to care about the truth. And number eight, not be addicted to wine or addicted to any substance for that matter. And number nine, not be a bully. Not abusive. Number 10, gentle, sensitive, loving, kind. Number 11, not quarrelsome. That means not argumentative and divisive. And number 12, not greedy. Not materialistic. And number 13, a person who manages his own household well with competence. That means being a good husband and being a good father. And number 14, not a new convert, but rather a seasoned Christian. And number 15, a good reputation among those on the outside. The the idea of being a good witness in the community at large. And so the Lord says, there's going to come a time. When I'm going to raise up leaders who are going to have the heart of David and who are going to reflect my heart. But remember, the heart of David becomes a reflection of the heart of Jesus. Remember, he is the good shepherd, isn't he? And so the righteous leader would one day come and packed into this wonderful sermon is this amazing messianic prophecy that begins to glow from the page. As you look at verse 5, you're caught up in the drama of the promise. Behold, he says, I want you to look. I want you to look that the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. That is, ladies and gentlemen, a messianic promise. Then in the midst of the pain and in the midst of the problems and in the midst of this profound circumstances that the children of Israel were facing, you all of a sudden get to look up for a brief moment and you get to see past the haze and the darkness and the wickedness. And there's this glimmer of hope that begins to shine. God made a promise to David in Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, I will raise to David. What was, what was that promise? Second Samuel seven sixteen. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne will be established forever. But you've just prophesied that the last kings of Judah and Jerusalem were going to be carried, some into captivity into Egypt, others into captivity into Babylon, and no one sat on David's throne after that. How are you going to fulfill your promise, God? You said that David's throne would be established forever. In Isaiah chapter 
4, verse 2, the prophet Isaiah said, In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Oh, someone's going to escape the judgment? Someone's going to pass through the fire? Someone's going to live beyond the judgment that's about to come? And the Lord says, yes. The branch, by the way, is the offshoot of David. Jesus is that branch. He's the shoot, the offspring. Jesus is the branch of righteousness over and over again. God promised a savior. God promised Adam and Eve a savior. God promised Abraham a savior. God promised Isaiah a savior. God promises Jeremiah a savior. In Isaiah, he was called the son would be born. The government would be on his shoulders. In Ezekiel, a savior is promised. In Daniel, a savior is promised. In Zechariah, a savior is promised. In Malachi, A Savior is promised. By the way, there are at least 117 scriptural names that are given for the Messiah. Including Adam, Advocate, Almighty, Alpha, Amen, Angel of the Lord. The Messiah is called Anointed, Apostle, Author. Jesus is called Babe, Beginning of Creation, Begotten of the Father, Beloved, Bishop, Blessed, the Brazen Serpent, the Bread of Life, the Bridegroom, the Bright and Morning Star, and here the Branch. That's just the A's and the B's, by the way. And so Jeremiah will draw into sharp focus four things to contrast this righteous branch with the unjust and the unrighteous shepherds. Number one, the Messiah will rule rule wisely and execute true righteousness and justice throughout the land. The return of Jesus to establish God's kingdom will include the elimination of lawlessness, injustice, oppression, violence, immorality that plagued the planet. The psalmist wrote, Thou, speaking of Christ, Thou lovest righteousness, you hate wickedness, there." For God, the Father, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows, it says in Psalm 45, 7. In the book of Revelation, John said, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And the Messiah will save and reunite the remnant, God's people, and give them peace. They will have peace in their hearts, and there will be peace in society. It will happen. Did it happen the first time that Jesus came? There was a sense in which sin was taken care of, and reconciliation was affected. But guess what? He's never sat on the throne of his father, David. But one day he will. He will return. Perfect peace will reign on the planet. And note what his name is. The Messiah will. That's number three. So Messiah will rule wisely. Number two, he will save and reunite the remnant. Number three, he will be called 
the Lord our righteousness. Look at verse 6. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Who is our righteousness? Jesus. By the way, what does that mean? What does righteousness mean? Does that just mean a perfect person? No, it means way more than that. It is the basis on which we are accepted by God the Father. The reason why he's called the Lord our righteousness is because we're not righteous. Our sin has separated us. It has clouded us and confused us. If ever we are going to have a right relationship with God, it's going to have to be on the basis of something other than our record. Unless, of course, you have a perfect record. Let's show a quick hands. Show of hands of those of you who are perfect. Oh, not a single hand went up. You know what's good about that? Jesus becomes the candidate who can become the Lord, your righteousness, the basis on which you are accepted, the basis on which you are chosen, adopted and accepted. Jesus lived the sinless life. Jesus secured perfect righteousness, the ideal righteousness. And so when people place their trust in Jesus, God credits his righteousness to our account. And when people place their trust in Jesus, God credits His righteousness to our account, we become acceptable to God. Listen carefully. Because Jesus was acceptable to God. So God reckons or counts us as righteous because we stand before God on the basis of the faithfulness and the sacrifice of Jesus. No wonder the book of Acts in chapter 13, verse 39 says, and by him, that's the Lord Jesus, everyone that believes are justified from all things which they could not be justified by the law of Moses. Based on the law of Moses... Your sinners in need of a savior. Based on the law of Moses, you stand guilty of having broken the law. In verses 5 and 6, the Messiah is the good shepherd in contrast to the false shepherds of Israel and Judah. And one day, Judah and Israel will be reunited. And so it says in verse 4, the Messiah... Well, and so that's the fourth thing. So the first thing, he'll rule wisely, execute righteousness. The second thing, he'll save and reunite the remnant. Number three, he will be called the Lord, our righteous. And number four, the Messiah will be the Savior who reunites the people who were separated at first by the wicked leaders. And then he will bring about an exodus greater than the exodus that was wrought by Moses. And so it says in verse seven, therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, and they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. What? That was the claim to fame. We were slaves. We were slaves in Egypt. But God raised up a deliverer, Moses, who rescued us from our slavery in Egypt. 
And Jeremiah takes away the veil and says, oh, there's a a deliverer who's even going to outdo Moses. I don't know. It's a pretty big deal. Liberating an entire group of people from bondage and slavery. Oh, but guess what? I'm going to deliver not just one group of people. And not just in one historical event. But I'm going to deliver Jews and Gentiles, black and white, male and female, Greek and non-Greek. I'm going to save the Gentiles. Verse 8, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them and they shall dwell in their own land. You've got to understand what an amazing statement that was. The ideal king, the good shepherd, would gather his people from the four corners of the planet and bring them somewhere into a land that was the inheritance promised by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think we're having a little bit of a vision of what that's like with the recreation of the state of Israel in 1948. Jews came from America, from South America. They came from Egypt and Morocco, Baghdad and Iran. Jews came from Russia and Eastern Europe. They came from North Africa and Ethiopia. And you know what? They're continuing to come. But I'm going to suggest to you that there's even going to be a greater bringing together when Jesus returns. And so there are warnings that are given to Judah's false prophets and unrighteous priests. In verse 9, Jeremiah writes, my heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. The idea is this. Jeremiah is literally shaken to the core. He's literally there's this overwhelming sense of, if I may use the term, intoxication. You know, it's characteristic of a person who's intoxicated. They're out of control. He can't control his emotions. He can't control what he's thinking. And by the way, here, I think that the heart is a euphemism for both the mind and the will and the emotions. Here, I think heart means the person who's inside of him. My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. Why? Because the prophets have repeatedly said, there's no problem. There's no enemy. You're fine just the way that you are. Your sin doesn't matter. There's no coming judgment. God's happy with you the way that you are. And remember, Jeremiah will outline the false prophet's perversions and the just and the certain punishments. The perversions will read like a checklist of wickedness and it'll include adultery and blasphemy and idolatry. Because remember, remember, the false prophets have misrepresented God. They've ridiculed and misrepresented God's true prophet, 
Again, Warren Wiersbe writes about this passage. He says, quote, what God said, as recorded in earlier, Jeremiah 14, 14, summarizes this entire section, quote, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them. I haven't commanded them, nor have I spoken to them. But they prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart, unquote. And so in verse 10, it says, for the land is full of adulterers, for because of a curse, the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their course of life is evil and their might is not. Right. In other words, they're abusing their authority. So when it says for the land is full of adulterers, I'm going to suggest to you that it could literally mean the sexually immoral. But it most certainly means the spiritually immoral. The people who have substituted the worship of the true God for a false God. And so it is duplicity, idolatry. And by the way, the wilderness here isn't a reference to those areas um, that aren't cultivated. This isn't the boonies. The wilderness here refers to those areas which were normally cultivated and fruitful. But because of wickedness and because of oppression and because of a consistent rebellion and disobedience, the places that were cultivated and fruitful had all dried up. And there's a reference, of course, to the abuse of royal power. Why? Because they've abused their leadership. And so in verse 11, it says, for both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house, I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. I want to remind you of something. What was the job of the prophet? What does that even mean? For both prophet and priest are profane. What is the job of the prophet? The job of the prophet is to speak for God. True or false? That is true. So if the prophet's job is to speak for God, and if the prophet's job is to speak the truth, and they're not speaking for God, and they're not speaking the truth. What good are they? What was the job of the priest? Remember, we've already talked about that. The priest's job was to care for the Ark of the Covenant. And by the way, in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant becomes a type and a picture of the Lord Jesus. The Ark of the Covenant becomes a type and a picture. The Ark, remember, is wood surrounded by gold, which represents the two natures of Jesus, the human nature and the divine nature. And you'll remember what was on the top of the Ark. It was the mercy seat and what was contained inside of the Ark. And so the priest's job was to care for the Ark, to serve in worship to teach and to provide legal instruction to serve as prayer intercessors for the people. But the people had abandoned the care of the ark. They had refused to worship the true and the living God. They had corrupted and, and distorted the Bible. The priest's job was to teach the law, which included the commandments for discerning right and wrong, good and evil and clean and unclean. But they weren't doing their job. And my house is a reference to the temple. The temple had become polluted. 
the temple had become unclean because of the wickedness of the people and most certainly because of the leaders. But you know what the prophets kept prophesying? Behold, the temple of, the God, of God. Behold, the temple of God. Behold, the temple of God. God brought us to Jerusalem. God gave David, our father, victory. God established Jerusalem and the temple as a perpetual place of worship. God would never, ever, ever allow the temple to be destroyed. This is exactly the same argument that Jesus would face centuries later. Remember when he said, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Remember the disciples said, look and see what a beautiful temple this is. But guess what? The church is not the building that you go to. The church isn't located at 9052 West King Carl Avenue. The church isn't a converted Albertsons. The church is converted sinners. People who have turned from their sin and embraced the Savior. You don't go to church. You are the church. You're the redeemed of the Lord. You're the body of Christ. And so a warning is given in verse 12. Therefore, their way shall be to them like slippery ways in the darkness. They shall be driven on and fall in them, for I will bring disaster on them. The year of their punishment, says the Lord. Here's the idea. The false teacher and the false priests paths are made dark and slippery. Here's the vision and the imagery. What if the priest and the false teacher decide that they're going to run away from the judgment of God? That they're going to try and escape the punishment for their wickedness and their abusive leadership? What if they say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a run for it. The Lord says, I'm going to make your paths dark and slippery so that no matter which direction you go, no matter how hard you tried to run, I'm going to make it so that you slip and fall. Sounds pretty awesome. And it says in verse 13. And I've seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied by Baal and caused my people Israel to err. In other words, the prophets of Samaria disregarded the true and the living God, they made up their own deity. And remember, they prophesied by Baal. Remember who Baal is. He is the Canaanite deity who is in charge of the rain and in charge of the weather. Baal in the ancient economy would have been the god of Wall Street and the god of the economy and the god of the political circumstance and the god of global warming. He is the God uh, who's in charge of the planet. 
and it rains because he lets it rain and he withholds rain. And so the people of Samaria would say, well, guess what? Maybe we're we're praying to the wrong deity. If we want rain, we should probably pray to Baal. If we want solutions to human problems, we should probably appeal to human beings. But the Lord says in verse 14. Also, I've seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and inhabitants like Gomorrah. False prophets plagued the northern kingdom, but then they plagued the southern kingdom. And the false prophets were guilty of spiritual adultery, a lifestyle of lies, repeated false and vain dreams, promising peace, provoking judgment. And look what it says. Not only do they do what's wrong and not only do they walk in lies, they also strengthen the hands of evildoers. In other words, not only do they not rebuke evil they give people an opportunity to continue in evil what's the result no one turns from his wickedness all of them are like Sodom to me and her inhabitants like Gomorrah what is the Lord saying that means all they are to me are people who have embraced judgment inescapable judgment and in verse 15 it says Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with wormwood and I will make them drink the water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. By the way, the word wormwood and the water of gall are references to bitterness and poison. So when he says, therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with wormwood. The idea is I am going their food and their sustenance is going to be bitterness and poison. That's what they have to look forward to. Why? Because the punishment for false prophecy was severe. What was the punishment? Turn back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20. Here's the test. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, That prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing doesn't happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously and you shall not be afraid of him. Here's what the false prophets have said. Thus says the Lord, we're fine. Thus says the Lord, no need to worry about sin and repentance. Thus says the Lord, we're going to dwell in safety. Thus says the Lord, the temple will be here in perpetuity. Thus says the Lord, 
you can continue to live your life as if the covenant that you made with God doesn't matter. But God didn't say that. Those were not the words that God had spoken. When we finish the chapter, we're going to look at some of these things, some of the consequences of the false spiritual leaders. But for now, I'm going to let you out early. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of all of this bad news, that there's good news. Jesus Christ, the Lord, our righteousness. There's a basis on which we are chosen and adopted and accepted in the beloved. For people who can't manufacture righteousness, righteousness is given. Because Jesus lived the perfect life that we could never live. Jesus died the death that we deserve. And Jesus rose from the dead. So that we could be motivated by something way more than just keeping the rules and the regulations. Lord, you place the Holy Spirit within our hearts. So that the basis of our friendship and our fellowship would be the empowering presence. And that, Lord, you've given us a new heart and a new life and a new direction and new discernment. That, Lord, we can judge between right and wrong and good and evil. And, Lord, we can tell if someone's telling the truth or if someone isn't being exactly honest with us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would grow and that we would mature that we would be able to tell right from wrong and good from evil and that we would grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's